This is an audio version of My Take on What We Owe the Future by Eli Lifland, published on the 2nd of September 2022. Cross-posted from Foxy Scout. Overview. What We Owe the Future, or WWOTF, by Will McCaskill, has recently been released with much fanfare. While I strongly agree that future people matter morally and we should act based on this, I think the book isn't clear enough about McCaskill's views on long-termist priorities. And to the extent it is, it presents a mistaken view of the most promising long-termist interventions. I argue that McCaskill, one, underestimates risk of misaligned AI takeover, two, overestimates risk from stagnation, and three, isn't clear enough about long-termist priorities. I highlight and expand on these disagreements, in part to contribute to the debate on these topics, but also make a practical recommendation. While I like some aspects of the book, I think The Precipice is a substantially better introduction for potential long-termist direct workers, for example, as a book given away to talented university students. For instance, I'm worried people will feel bait and switched if they get into EA via What We Owe the Future then do an 80,000 hours call or hang out around their EA university group and realise most people think AI risk is the biggest long-termist priority, many thinking this by a large margin. And a footnote here reads, edited in for clarity. My concern is not that people won't toe the, quote, party line of long-termism and think AI is the most important. I'm very in favour of people forming their own views and encouraging new people to share their perspectives. My primary concern here is the effects of the lack of transparency in what we owe the future about McCaskill's views on long-termist prioritisation, and to the extent people interpret the book as representing long-termism in some sense, lack of clarity on the movement's opinions. That's the end of the footnote. Section heading. What I disagree with. Footnote. In this section, I do my best to give my all-things-considered beliefs belief after updating on what other people believe, rather than, or in addition to, my explicitly flagged when given, independent impressions. That being said, I think it's pretty hard to separate out independent impressions versus all things considered beliefs on complex topics when you're weighing many forms of evidence, and beliefs are formed over a long period of time. When initially writing this review, I thought McCaskill was attempting to give his all-things-considered credences in What We Are the Future. But, from discussing with reviewers, it seems McCaskill is giving something closer to his independent impression when possible. Or something like, independent impressions and McCaskill is confused about how to update in light of peer disagreement. Though note that McCaskill shares a similar sentiment about it being difficult to separate between these and his credences should likely be interpreted as somewhere in between all things considered beliefs and independent impressions. To the extent McCaskill isn't trying to take into account peer disagreement, he isn't necessarily trying to predict what an ideal reasoning process would output as described in the appendix. That's the end of the footnote. Returning to the main text, we just read the section heading, What I Disagree With, and now we have a smaller heading, Underestimating Risk of Misaligned AI Takeover and another smaller heading under that, overall probability of takeover. 
In EndNote 2.22, page 274, McCaskill writes, emphasis mine, quote, I put that possibility of misaligned AI takeover at around 3% this century. I think most of the risk we face comes from scenarios where there is a hot or cold war between great powers. Audio note, it was the first sentence there that was bolded. End quote. I think a 3% chance of misaligned AI takeover this century is too low, with 90% confidence. See the appendix section, Defining Confidence in Unresolvable Claims, for how I'm defining confidence in directional unresolvable claims. And you can use the chapter headings to navigate there in the audio, if your player supports that. Most of the risk coming from scenarios with hot or cold great power wars may be technically true, if one thinks a war between US and China is more than 50% likely soon, which might be reasonable, with a loose definition of Cold War. That being said, I strongly think McCaskill's claim about Great Power War gives the wrong impression of the most probable AI takeover threat models. My credence on misaligned AI takeover is 35% this century, of which not much depends on a Great Power War scenario. Footnote, formerly I had 40% in this post, but corrected to 35% due to correcting the mistake of failing to multiply six probabilities together correctly. That's in the footnote, back to the main text. Below, I'll explain why my best guess credence is 35%. The biggest input is a report on power-seeking AI, but I'll also list some other inputs, then aggregate the inputs. Heading, Power-Seeking AI Report. The best analysis estimating the chance of existential risk, or X-risk, from misaligned AI takeover that I'm aware of is Is Power-Seeking AI an Existential Risk? by Joseph Carl Smith. I strongly recommend reading it, or if you're short on time, watching a presentation linked here by the author. Carl Smith decomposes a possible existential catastrophe from AI into six steps, each conditional on the previous ones. One. Timelines. By 2070, it will be possible and financially feasible to build APS AI. Systems with advanced capabilities outperform humans at tasks important for gaining power. Agentic planning make plans then act on them. And strategic awareness. Its plans are based on models of the world good enough to overpower humans. Audio note. Formatting in the text points out that APS AI gets its initials from advanced capabilities, agentic planning, and strategic awareness. Here's the second of Carl Smith's steps. Incentives. There will be strong incentives to build and deploy APS AI. 3. Alignment difficulty. It would be much harder to build APS AI systems that don't seek power in unintended ways than ones that would seek power but are superficially attractive to deploy. 4. High-impact failures. Some deployed APS AI systems will seek power in unintended and high-impact ways, collectively causing more than $1 trillion in damage. 5. Disempowerment. Some of the power-seeking will, in aggregate, permanently disempower all of humanity. 6. Catastrophe. The disempowerment will constitute an existential catastrophe. That's the end of that list. I'll first discuss my component probabilities for a catastrophe by 2100, 
rather than 2070, then discuss the implications of Carl Smith's own assessment, as well as reviewers of his report. And a footnote here says, I'm intending to think more about this and flesh these out further in a post, hopefully within one to two months. Back to the main text, it's a numbered list breaking down these probabilities. 1. Timelines. By 2100, it will be possible and financially feasible to build APS AI. Systems with advanced capabilities, outperform humans at tasks important for gaining power, agentic planning, make plans then act on them, and strategic awareness. Its plans are based on models of the world good enough to overpower humans. 80% probability. I explained this probability for transformative AI or TAI below. I don't think my probability changes much between TAI and APS AI. Footnote, the 80% below was assuming no catastrophes. I'll also assume no other catastrophes here for simplicity, and because I think people often do this when estimating non-AI risks, so it seems good to be consistent. Back to the main text, the second item in this list. Two, incentives. There will be strong incentives to build and deploy APS AI. 85% probability. I think it's very likely that APS systems will be much more useful than non-APS systems, as expanded upon in section 3.1 of the report. It seems like, so far, systems that are closer to APS and more general have been more effective, and I only see reasons for this incentive gradient to become stronger over time. 3. Alignment difficulty it will be much harder to build APS AI systems that don't seek power in unintended ways than ones that would seek power but are superficially attractive to deploy. 75% probability. Fundamentally, controlling an agent much more capable than yourself feels very hard to me. I like the analogy of a child having to hire an adult to be their company's CEO, described in an Ajaya Kotra piece on the Cold Takes blog at a link here in the post. I don't see much reason for hope based on the progress of existing technical alignment strategies. My current biggest hope is that we can use non-APS AI in various ways to help automate alignment research and figure out how to align APS AIs. But I'm not sure how much mileage we can get with this. See a link here for more. 4. High Impact Failures Some deployed APS AI systems will seek power in unintended and high-impact ways, collectively causing more than a trillion dollars in damage, 90% probability. Once misaligned APS AI systems are being deployed, I think we're in a pretty scary place. If at least one is deployed, probably many will be deployed, if the first one doesn't disempower us, due to correlation on how hard alignment is, And even if we're very careful at first, the systems will get smarter over time, and there will be more of them. High-impact failures feel inevitable. 5. Disempowerment. Some of the power-seeking will in aggregate permanently disempower all of humanity. 80%. Seems like a narrow capabilities target to get something that causes a high-impact failure, but doesn't disempower us relative to the range of possible capabilities of AI systems. But I have some hope for a huge warning shot that wakes people up, or that killing everyone turns out to be really, really hard. 6. Catastrophe. 
the disempowerment will constitute an existential catastrophe, 95%. Conditional on unintentional disempowerment of humanity, it's likely that almost all possible value in the future would be lost, as there's a large possible space of values, and most of them being optimized lead to approximately valueless worlds from the perspective of human values. See also Value is Fragile, linked here. I basically agree with Carl Smith's reasoning in the report. That's the end of the numbered list, and the author continues. This gives me an approximately 35% chance of existential risk from misaligned AI takeover by 2100, based on my rough personal credences. Carl Smith, the author of the report, originally ended up with 5% risk. As of May 2022, he is up to greater than 10%. I've read all of the reviews and found the ones from Nate Suarez, in particular the sections on alignment difficulty and misalignment outcomes, and Daniel Cocotilo to be the most compelling. They have probability of AI doom by 2070 at greater than 77% and 65% respectively. Footnote. McCaskill mentions in a forum comment he liked Ben Garfinkel's review of the report. I personally didn't find it that persuasive, and generally agreed with Carl Smith's counterpoints more than Garfinkel's points. But it might be a good source for those who want the best arguments that Carl Smith is overestimating rather than underestimating AI risk. Back to the main text where the author was just discussing reviews of the book from Nate Suarez and Daniel Cocotilo. The author writes... Some of the points that resonated the most with me. 1. By Suarez. The AI may not even need to look all that superficially good, because the actors will be under various pressures to persuade themselves that things look good. Suarez expects the world to look more derpy than competent. See our COVID response. 2. By Suarez. Quote, I suspect I think the capability band do a trillion dollars worth of damage but don't kill all humans, is narrower or harder to hit, and I suspect we disagree about how much warning shots help civilization get its act together and do better next time. End quote. Three. By Cockatilo, quote, Beware isolated demands for rigour. Imagine someone in 1960 saying, quote, Some people thought battleships would beat carriers. Others thought that the entire war would be won from the air. Predicting this stuff is hard. We shouldn't be confident. Therefore, we shouldn't assign more than 90% credence to the claim that computers will be militarily useful, for example in weapon guidance systems or submarine sensor suites. Maybe it'll turn out that it's cheaper and more effective to just use humans, or bioengineered dogs or whatever. Or maybe there'll be anti-computer weapons that render them useless. Who knows? The future is hard to predict. End quote. Cockatilo's quote continues. This is what the author sounds like to me. I want to say, battleships versus carriers was a relatively hard prediction problem. Whether computers would be militarily useful was an easy one. It's obvious that APS systems will be powerful and useful for some important niches. Just like how it was obvious in 1960 that computers would have at least a few important military applications. That's the end of Cockatilo's quote, and the author adds... And in general, I think the whole incentives section of Cockatilo's review is great. That's the end of the numbered list of points that resonated the most with the author. Heading. Other inputs. A few more pieces that have informed my views. 
One, Cotra's article, without specific countermeasures, the easiest path to transformative AI likely leads to AI takeover. I found this fairly compelling by spelling out a fairly plausible story with fairly short AI timelines and an AI takeover. In sum, an AI is trained using human feedback on diverse tasks. For example, generally doing useful things on a computer. The AI learns general skills, deceives humans during the training phase to get higher rewards than an honest strategy, then after deployment of many copies, takes over humanity to either maximise reward forever or pursue whatever its actual goals are. I think, as does Ajaya Kotra, the author, that something close to the exact story is unlikely to play out. But I think the piece is very useful nonetheless, as the XKCD linked in the post indicates. And that's a link to an XKCD cartoon about the difficulty of persuading people that bad things are actually happening. And here is the second of the pieces that have informed the author's views. AGI Ruin, A List of Lethalities, by Yudkowsky. While I'm more optimistic about our chances than Yudkowsky, I think the majority of the things he's pointing at are real, non-trivial difficulties that we need to keep in mind and could easily fail to address. The rest of the 2022 MIRI alignment discussion seems informative as well, though I haven't had a chance to read most of it in depth. Replies to AGI Ruin from Paul Cristiano and the DeepMind alignment team are also great reads. It's important to note how much about the situation all three parties agree on, despite some important disagreements. That's the end of that list. Finally, I've updated some based on my experience with Samitsvetti forecasters when discussing AI risk. We've primarily selected forecasters to invite for having good scores and leaving reasonable comments, rather than any ideological tests. When we discussed the report on power-seeking AI, I expected tons of scepticism, but in fact almost all forecasters seem to give greater than or equal to 5% to disempowerment by power-seeking AI by 2070, with many giving greater than or equal to 10%. I'm curious to see the results of Tedlock Group's X-Risk Forecasting Tournament as well. To be clear, I don't think we should update too much based on generalist forecasters, as opposed to those who have engaged for years of their life and have good judgement. But I do think it's a relevant data point. Edited to add, I've now published Samitsvetti aggregate forecasts at a link here. And here is an excerpt from those. Quote, A few of the headline aggregate forecasts are 1. 25% chance of misaligned AI takeover by 2100, barring pre-APS AI catastrophe. 2. 81% chance of transformative AI or TAI by 2100, barring pre-TAI catastrophe. 3. 32% chance of AGI being developed in the next 20 years. End quote. Heading. Aggregating inputs. So I end up with something like, 1. An approximately 35% chance of misaligned AI takeover this century, based on my independent impression. 2. Many people who I respect are lower, but some are substantially higher, including Cocotilo and Suarez. I'm going to stick to 35% for now, but it's a very tough question, and I could see ending up at anywhere between 10-90% to 90% on further reflection and discussion. Heading. Treatment of timelines. 
This is the second subheading underneath Underestimating Risk of Misaligned AI Takeover, which is itself a subheading of What I Disagree With. In EndNote 2.22, page 274, McCaskill gives 30% to faster-than-exponential growth. My understanding is that this is almost all due to scenarios involving TAI. So McCaskill's credence on TAI by 2100 is approximately 30% plus the 3% from AI takeover equals 33%. I think 33% is too low with 85% confidence. My credence in transformative AI or TAI by 2100 is around 80%, barring pre-TAI catastrophe. Some reasoning informing my view. Here's a numbered list. 1. As explained at a link here, the BioAnchors report by Ajaya Kotra includes an evolution anchor forecasting when we would create TAI if we had to do as many computations as all animals in history combined to copy natural selection. It finds that even under this conservative assumption, there is a 50% chance of TAI by 2100. Footnote, see also a concern about the evolutionary anchor of Ajaya Kotra's report on AI timelines, linked here, for some pushback and discussion. End of the footnote. While I don't put that much weight on the report as a whole because all individual AI forecasting methods have serious limitations, I think it's the best self-contained AI timelines argument out there and does provide some evidence for 50% TAI by 2100 as a soft lower bound. 2. Human feedback on diverse tasks, or HFDT, as described at a link here, already feels like a somewhat plausible story for TAI. While I'm sceptical it will just work without many hiccups, I give around 10-15% to TAI within 10 years. 80 years is a really long time to refine techniques and scale up architecture and data. 3. AI research already is sped up by AI a little and may soon be sped up substantially more, leading to faster progress. Here are some subpoints under 3, 3a. This spreadsheet, linked from this post, these are links, collects examples of AI improving AI, including NVIDIA using AI to optimise their GPU designs, and Google using AI to optimise AI accelerator chips. 3b. One story that seems plausible is... Language model, or LM, tools are already improving the productivity of Google developers a little. We don't appear to yet be hitting diminishing returns to better LMs, scale, data, and simple low-hanging fruit like chain of thought and collecting a better data set are yielding huge improvements. Footnote. See also AI forecasting one year in. Quote, Specifically, progress on ML benchmarks happened significantly faster than forecasters expected but forecasters predicted faster progress than I did personally, and my sense is that I expect somewhat faster progress than the median ML researcher does. End quote. That's the end of that footnote. We're back in 3B. Therefore, we should expect LM tools to get better and better at speeding up AI research, which will lead to faster progress. 3C. AI research might be easy to automate relative to other tasks, since humans aren't very optimised for it by natural selection. See also Moravec's paradox, points stolen from Ngo in Miri conversations, and there's some links there. 4. 
For a range of opinions on the chance of APS AI by 2070, see a link here. Most reviewers are above 50%, even ones who are skeptical of large risks from misaligned AI. 5. Holden Konofsky gave 67% approximately to TAI by 2100, before Ajaya Kotra, author of the BioAnchors report, moved her timelines closer. 5a. My impression is that Konofsky has longer timelines than almost all of the people closest to being AI forecasting experts in quotes. For example, Kotra, Kokotilo, Carl Smith. Though there are selection effects here. That's the end of that numbered list. So overall, the picture looks to me like 50% is a conservative, soft lower bound for TAI by 2100. I have some inside view reasons to think it might be likely much sooner. And most of the reasonable people who have thought the most about this subject tend to give at least 67%. On the other hand, I give some weight to us being very mistaken. Mashing all these intuitions together gives me a best guess of 80%, though I think I could end up at anywhere between 60% and 90% on further reflection and discussion. Significantly shorter AI timelines dramatically increase the importance of reducing AI risk relative to other interventions, especially preventing stagnation as discussed below. Footnote, see also this comment by Carl Schulman, quote, There are very expensive interventions that are financially constrained, so that, for example, twice the probability of AGI in the next 10 years justifies spending twice as much for a given result by doubling the chance the result gets to be applied. End quote. That's the end of that subheading. Now we have the next one, Treatment of Alignment, which is the third subheading underneath Underestimating Risk of Misaligned AI Takeover, part of the What I Disagree With section. The section AI and Entrenchment beginning on page 83, focuses on risks from aligned AIs and comes before AI takeover, in quotes. This seems like a mistake of emphasis, as the risks of misalignment feel much larger, given that right now we don't know how to align an AGI. Footnote, I think there's some chance aligning AGIs turns out to not be that hard. For example, if we just tell it to do good stuff and not to do bad stuff plus somewhat intensive adversarial training and red teaming. It mostly works, but it's less than 50%. That's the end of the footnote. McCaskill writes on page 87, quote, Often the risk of AI takeover is bundled with other risks of human extinction. But this is a mistake. First, not all AI takeover scenarios would result in human extinction, end quote. I agree this is technically true but I think in practice it's probably not a substantial consideration. I think with 90% confidence that the vast majority, more than 90%, of misaligned AI takeovers would cause extinction, or would practically have the same effect, given that they would destroy humanity's potential. Quote, From a moral perspective, AI takeover looks very different from other extinction risks. AI agents would continue civilization. It's an open question, how good or bad such civilization would be. What's at stake when navigating the transition to a world with advanced AI, then, is not whether civilization continues, but which civilization continues. End quote. I think it's very likely, greater than or equal to 95%, that the civilization would be bad 
conditional on AI misalignment, as described above. See Proposition 6, Catastrophe. Since McCaskill doesn't give a precise credence in this section, it's hard to say with what confidence I disagree, but I'd guess approximately 80%. That's the end of the section, Underestimating Risk of Misaligned AI Takeover. Now here's the second heading under What I Disagree With, and that heading is Overestimating Risk from Stagnation. In Chapter 7, McCaskill discusses stagnation from a long-termist perspective. I'll argue that he overestimates both the chance of stagnation and the expected length of stagnation. Since I give an approximately seven times lower chance of stagnation and approximately 1.5 times shorter expected length, I think McCaskill overrates extinction risk from stagnation, extending the time of perils by approximately 10 times. Footnote. In earlier drafts, I gave a 10 times lower chance of stagnation and a 2.5 times shorter expected length for 25 times less weight overall. But after some discussion, I now think I was underselling the evidence in the book for decline in researcher productivity. I previously thought it perhaps hadn't declined at all, and now just disagree about the degree. As well as the arguments for long expected length of stagnation. While I still place significantly less weight on stagnation than McCaskill, I'm less sceptical than I initially was, and differing AI timelines are doing about half the work on my scepticism. That's the end of the footnote, back to the main text where we just read, Since I give an approximately 7 times lower chance of stagnation and approximately 1.5 times shorter expected length, I think McCaskill overrates extinction risk from stagnation extending the time of perils by around 10 times. I then explain why this matters. Heading, Overestimating Chance of Stagnation. In Endnote 2.22, page 274, McCaskill writes, emphasis mine, quote, This century, the world could take one of approximately four trajectories. I think the stagnation scenario is most likely, followed by the faster-than-exponential growth scenario. If I had to give precise credences, I'd say 35%. Audio note, bolded text was, this century, I think the stagnation scenario is most likely, and if I had to give precise credences, I'd say 35%. That's the end of the quote, and there's a footnote here. Another place where this is brought up is page 162, quote, even if stagnation has only a 1 in 3 chance of occurring, end quote. I'm not sure where the jump from a best guess of 35% to a lower reasonable bound of 33% comes from. That's the end of the footnote. Note that stagnation is defined here as GDP growth slowing, separate from global catastrophes. Though I'm a bit confused, as the definition in the end note seems to conflict with this quote on page 159, also discussed below. Quote, Perhaps a stagnant future is characterised by recurrent global catastrophes that repeatedly inhibit escape from stagnation. End quote. Kudos to McCaskill for giving a credence here. I'll argue that the credence is an extremely implausible overestimate. My credence in stagnation this century is 5%, and the aggregated forecast of five Samitsveti forecasters, one of which is me, is also 5%, with a range of 1% to 10%. I think McCaskill's 35% credence is too high, with 95% confidence. 
I'll explain some intuitions behind why McCaskill's 35% credence is way too high below. AI timelines, non-AI tech, and overestimating the rate of decline in researcher productivity. Now each of those points has some detail. Here's AI timelines. As discussed above, my credence on TAI by 2100, barring catastrophe, is 80%, while McCaskill's is around 33%. My TAI timelines put an upper bound of 20% on stagnation this century, so this is driving a substantial portion of the disagreement here. However, there is some remaining disagreement from non-TAI worlds as well. McCaskill gives 35% to stagnation this century, and around 33% to TAI this century, implying 35 over 67 equals approximately 52% chance of stagnation in non-TAI worlds. I think McCaskill gives too much credence to stagnation in non-TAI worlds, with 75% confidence. I give 5 over 20 equals 25% to stagnation in non-TAI worlds. In the next two sections, I'll explore the reasons behind this disagreement. Here's the second of the author's intuitions why 35% credence is way too high. Non-AI tech. It seems like there's other tech that's already feasible or close that could get us out of stagnation, which are mainly not applied due to taboos. In particular, human cloning and genetic enhancement. A footnote for human cloning reads, this is mentioned in the book on page 156. See endnote 7.50, quote, Muming Pu said in 2018 that, quote, technically there is no barrier to human cloning, end quote. That's end of the footnote. There's another footnote for genetic enhancement. See Predicting Polygenic Selection for IQ, linked here in the footnote by Beck. The main text goes on. I think if stagnation started to look likely, at least some countries would experiment with these technologies. I'd guess there would be strong incentives to do so, as any country that did would have the chance of becoming a world power. And here's the third and final of the author's intuitions. Overestimating the rate of decline in research productivity. Beginning on page 150, McCaskill discusses two competing effects regarding whether scientific progress is getting easier or harder. Quote, There are two competing effects. On the one hand, we, quote, stand on the shoulders of giants. Previous discoveries can make future progress easier. The invention of the internet made researching this book, for example, much easier than it would have been in the past. On the other hand, we pick the low-hanging fruit. We make the easy discoveries first, so those that remain are more difficult. You can only invent the wheel once, and once you have, it's harder to find a similarly important invention. End quote. McCaskill then argues that picking the low-hanging fruit predominates, meaning past progress makes future progress harder. I agree that it almost certainly dominates, but I'm significantly less confident on to what extent it still does in the internet age, which leads me to expect stagnation to occur more gradually. Qualitatively, McCaskill gives the examples of Einstein and the Large Hadron Collider. Quote, In 1905, his miracle year, in quotes, Albert Einstein revolutionised physics while working as a patent clerk. Compared to Einstein's day, progress in physics is now much harder to achieve. 
The Large Hadron Collider cost about $5 billion, and thousands of people were involved. End quote. While there may be diminishing returns within physics in a somewhat similar paradigm, an important point left out here is the paradigm shifts. There may very often be strong diminishing returns to research effort within a paradigm, but when a new paradigm arises, many new low-hanging fruit pop up. This point is taken from this section linked here of a rebuttal essay to Bloom et al.'s Are Ideas Getting Harder to Find? We can see this effect recently in deep learning. Since the GPT-3 paper came out, many low-hanging fruit have been picked quickly, such as chain-of-thought prompting and correcting language model scaling laws. The stronger argument that McCaskill presents is quantitative. He argues on page 151 and in EndNote 7.26 that since 1800, research effort has grown by at least 500 times, while productivity growth rates have stayed the same or declined a bit. This would mean research productivity has declined at least 500 times. I roughly agree that research effort has grown at least 500 times. The key question in my mind is to what extent effective, in quotes, productivity growth rates have actually approximately stayed the same. I agree they very likely haven't increased a corresponding 500 times, but 5 times to 50 times seems plausible, due to measurement issues. How much can we trust statistics like TFP and even GDP to capture research productivity in the internet age? My current take is that they're useful, but we should take them with a huge grain of salt. I have two concerns. A. Lack of capturing the most talented people's output, and B. Lags between research productivity and impact on GDP. First, many of the most talented people now work in sectors such as software, where their output is mostly not captured by either GDP or TFP. For example, I predict many of the most productive people would rather give up 50% of their salary than give up internet access or even search engines. See a paper linked here, which studies this empirically, but not targeted at the most productive people. But this consumer surplus is barely counted in GDP statistics. This point was taken from a section linked here of a rebuttal to Blue Metal. McCaskill attempts to address considerations like this in EndNote 7.10. I don't find his argument that GDP was likely mismeasuring progress even more greatly before 1970 than it is now convincing, but am open to having my mind changed. I'd guess that the internet and services on top of it are a much bigger deal in terms of research productivity than, for example, the telephone, providing a bigger surplus than previous technologies. A reviewer mentioned the rise and fall of American growth, the US standard of living since the Civil War, that's linked here, as a further reference, defending the argument in EndNote 7.10. I didn't get a chance to look into the book. Second, there's likely a significant lag between research productivity and impact on GDP. The internet is still relatively new, but we can see with, for example, AI research, that big things seem to be on the horizon, that haven't yet made a dent in GDP. And there's a footnote here after there's likely a significant lag between research productivity and impact on GDP that reads, I'm particularly unsure about this point. Feel free to tear it to shreds if it's invalid. Back to the main text, here's the second heading under overestimating risk from stagnation. The first was overestimating chance of stagnation. And this one is overestimating length of stagnation. 
On page 159, McCaskill suggests that the expected length of stagnation is likely over 1,000 years. Quote, Even if you think it's 90% likely that stagnation would last only a couple of centuries, and just 10% likely that it would last 10,000 years, then the expected length of stagnation is still over 1,000 years. End quote. I disagree. I think the expected length of stagnation is less than 1,000 years with 70% confidence. I'd put the expected length of stagnation at 600 years and give less than 2% to a stagnation of at least 10,000 years. In the section, How Long Would Stagnation Last?, beginning on page 156, McCaskill gives a few arguments for why stagnation might, quote, last for centuries or even millennia. Quote, Getting out of stagnation requires only that one country at one point in time is able to reboot sustained technological progress. And if there's a diversity of societies with evolving cultures and institutional arrangements over time, then it seems likely that one will manage to restart growth. However, to a significant extent, we are already living in a global culture. If that culture develops into one that is not conducive to technological progress, that could make stagnation more persistent. We've already seen the homogenizing force of modern secular culture for some high-fertility religious groups. A single global culture could be especially opposed to science and technology if there were a world government. End quote. I agree that our culture is much more globally homogenous than it used to be. But it still feels fairly heterogeneous to me, and becoming more homogenous seems to be strongly correlated with more transformative technologies. Additionally, one needs to think not only that society will become homogenous, but that it will stay homogenous for millennia. I'd give this less than 5%, especially conditioning on stagnation having occurred which would make technologies enabling enforcement of homogeneity less powerful. This includes the possibility of strong world governments. I'm very sceptical of their likelihood or stability without transformative technologies. Quote, A second reason why stagnation might last a long time is population decline. In this situation, the bar for an outlier culture to restart technological progress is much higher. End quote. This point feels stronger, but I think I likely still assign less weight to it than McCaskill, since persistent population decline feels more likely in worlds which are very homogenous. If the world is somewhat heterogeneous, all you need are a few remaining cultures with high fertility rates, which will dominate over time. Thus, this point is very correlated to the above point. Quote, The world population could also decrease dramatically as a result of a global catastrophe. Perhaps a stagnant future is characterised by recurrent global catastrophes that repeatedly inhibit escape from stagnation. End quote. This scenario feels the most plausible to me. But it seems like the best interventions to prevent this type of long stagnation are targeted at avoiding catastrophes or rebuilding after them, for example, civilizational refuges, rather than trying to ensure that tech progress will persist through the catastrophes. And here's the final subheading under overestimating risk from stagnation. Why this matters. McCaskill argues that risk of stagnation is high, so contributing to technological progress is good, and is unsure if even speeding up AI progress would be good or bad. For example, on page 244, quote, 
we need to ensure that the engine of technological progress keeps running. End quote. On page 224, quote, I just don't know. Is it good or bad to accelerate AI development? Speeding it up could help reduce the risk of technological stagnation. End quote. I think contributing to general tech progress is approximately neutral, and speeding up AI progress is bad, also related to my disagreements about AI risk. Another implication of differences in AI and future tech timelines specifically is that it discounts the value of working on stuff aimed at very long-run effects substantially. For example, McCaskill discusses how long surface coal will last on page 140, concluding that it will, quote, probably last longer, end quote, than around 50 to 300 years, depending on the region. He writes, quote, But from a long-term point of view, we need to take these sorts of timescales seriously, end quote. I think AI and other tech will very likely, more than 90%, have changed the world so massively by then that it mostly doesn't make sense to think about it from this sort of lens. Similarly, I put much less weight than McCaskill on the importance of increasing fertility rates, though it seems net positive. That's the end of the section overestimating risk from stagnation. And now we have the next heading under what I disagree with. Lack of clarity on long-termist priorities. My impression is that if someone reads through this book, they would get a mistaken impression of what long-termist priorities actually are and should be. For example, as far as I remember, there is little in the book that makes it clear that reducing AI and bio-risk is likely a higher priority on the margin than maintaining technological progress or fighting climate change. This is in contrast to The Precipice, which has a table summarising the author's estimations of the magnitude of risks. McCaskill, at times, seemed reluctant to quantify his best-guess credences, especially in the main text. His estimates for the likelihood of stagnation versus catastrophe versus growth scenarios, as well as AI risk and bio-risk, are buried in the middle of EndNote 2.22. There are some bio-risk estimates on page 113, but these are citing others, rather than giving McCaskill's own view. McCaskill doesn't directly state his best-guess credence regarding AI timelines, instead putting it in EndNote 2.22 in a fairly indirect way. Credence on faster-than-exponential growth. Quote, Perhaps driven by advances in artificial intelligence, end quote. But as mentioned above, this is an extremely important parameter for prioritisation. He introduces the SPC framework, but in few places provides numerical estimates of significance, persistence and contingency, SPC, preferring to make qualitative arguments. I think this will leave readers with a mistaken sense of long-termist priorities and also make it harder to productively disagree with the book and continue the debate. For example, I realised via feedback on this draft that McCaskill's AI timelines actually are indirectly given in EndNote 2.22. But at first I missed this, which made it harder to identify cruxes. For further thoughts on the extent to which long-termist prioritisation is emphasised in the book, framed as a reply to McCaskill's comments regarding his reasoning, see the appendix. That's the end of the section, What I Disagree With. Section heading. What I Like. Heading. 
discussing the importance of value lock-in from AI. While, as described above, I think the current biggest problem we have to solve is figuring out how to reliably align a powerful AI at all, I did appreciate the discussion of value lock-in possibilities, even when it's aligned. I liked the section, Building a Morally Exploratory World, beginning at page 97, and would be concerned about AI safety researchers who think of alignment more as getting the AGI to have our current values, rather than something like making the AI help us figure out what our ideal values are before implementing them. I think this has been discussed for a while among AI safety researchers, for example the idea of coherent extrapolated volition. But it sometimes gets lost in current discussions, and I think it's a significant point in favour of AI safety researchers and policymakers being altruistically motivated. Footnote. As opposed to, for example, wanting to avoid their own death. I think this is fine to have as a supplementary motivation if it helps increase productivity and grasp the urgency of the problem. But on reflection, the motivation being altruistic seems good to me. That being said, if someone is really talented and not that altruistic but wants to work on AI safety, I'd likely still be excited about them working on it, given how neglected the problem is. That's the end of the footnote. Here's the next heading under what I like. Introducing the SPC framework. In the section, A Framework for Thinking About the Future, beginning page 31, McCaskill introduces the SPC significance, persistence, contingency, framework, for assessing the long-term value of an action. 1. Significance. What's the average value added by bringing about a certain state of affairs? 2. Persistence. How long will this state of affairs last once it has been brought about? 3. Contingency. If not for the action under consideration, how briefly would the world have been in this state of affairs, if ever? I found the framework interesting, and it seems like a fairly useful decomposition of the value of long-termist interventions, particularly ones that aren't aimed at reducing X-risk. Here's the third heading under what I like. Presenting an emotionally compelling case for long-termism. I personally find the idea that future people matter equally very intuitive, but I still found the case for long-termism in Chapter 1 especially the first section of the book, The Silent Billions, relatively emotionally compelling, and have heard others also did. I also love the passage on page 72 about being a moral entrepreneur. Quote, Lay was the paradigm of a moral entrepreneur. Someone who thought deeply about morality, took it very seriously, was utterly willing to act in accordance with his convictions, and was regarded as an eccentric a weirdo, for that reason. We should aspire to be weirdos like him. Others may mock you for being concerned about people who will be born in thousands of years' time. But many at the time mocked the abolitionists. We are very far from creating the perfect society. And until then, in order to drive forward moral progress, we need morally motivated heretics who are able to endure ridicule from those who wish to preserve the status quo. End quote. That's the end of the section, What I Like. Section heading. Why I prefer the precipice for potential long-termist direct workers. I would strongly prefer to give the precipice rather than what we owe the future 
as an introduction to potential long-termist direct workers. An example of a potential long-termist direct worker is a talented university student. I'm not making strong claims about other groups like the general public or policymakers, though I'd tentatively weakly prefer the precipice for them as well, since I think it's more accurate and we need strong reasons to sacrifice accuracy. I prefer the precipice because... This list of reasons is structured as a numbered list with subpoints under each number. Audio note, I'll indicate this nested list structure where it's important for comprehension, otherwise I just won't mention it. Here's the first point. 1. It generally seems more likely to make correct claims, especially on AI risk. Even though I think it still underestimates AI risk, it focuses to a larger extent on misalignment. While I don't think accuracy is the only desirable quality in a book that's someone's intro to EA, I think it's fairly important. And the precipice doesn't seem much worse on other important axes. 2. It makes the author's view on long-termist priorities much more clear. Someone could read What We Owe the Future and come out having little preference between reducing AI risk, maintaining tech progress, speeding up clean energy, etc., I predict around 25% of people will feel bait and switched if they get into EA via what we owe the future, and then do an 80,000 hours call or hang around their EA university group, and realise most people think AI risk is the biggest long-termist priority, many thinking this by a large margin. 3. I'd push back against a counter-argument that it's nice to have a gentle introduction for people uncomfortable with subjective probabilities, prioritisation, and AI takeover scenarios. 3a. Prioritisation and a willingness to use numbers even when they feel arbitrary, or not taking them too seriously, are virtues close to the core of EA that I'd want many long-termist direct workers to have. 3b. I'd much prefer people who are willing to take ideas that initially seem weird seriously. I think we should usually filter for these types of people while doing outreach. To be clear, I'm excited about people who aren't quickly convinced by weird ideas like the substantial probability of AI takeover in the next 50 years, but I'd prefer people who engage critically and curiously with weird ideas rather than disengage. 3C. Edited to add. I think being upfront about our beliefs and prioritisation mindset might be important for maintaining and improving community epistemics, which I think is an extremely important goal. See a comment linked here for further thoughts. 4. One big difference between the precipice and what we owe the future that I'm not as sure about is the framing of reducing X risks as interventions as opposed to trajectory changes and safeguarding civilization. I lean toward the precipice and X risks here, but this belief isn't very resilient. See the appendix for more on the likelihood of the best possible future which is one crux on whether it makes sense to primarily use the X-risk framing. Though another important one is which is more intuitive. Heading. Impact contributors. Section heading. Acknowledgements. Audio note. Following the acknowledgements are the appendices. Thanks to Nuno Sempere, Misha Yagudin, Alex Lawson, Michel Justin, Max Daniel, Charlie Griffin, and others for very helpful feedback. Thanks to Tolga Bilge, Greg Justice, Jonathan Mann, and Aaron Ho 
for forecasts on stagnation likelihood. Thanks to a few others for conversations that helped me refine my views on the book. The claims in this piece ultimately represent my views and are not necessarily those of anyone else listed above, unless explicitly stated otherwise. Section Heading Appendix This appendix has several subheadings, here's the first one. Defining confidence in unresolvable claims. Throughout the review, I argue for several unresolvable, that is, we'll never find out the correct answer, directional claims like McCaskill arrives at a credence or estimate X for claim Y, and I think this is too high or low, with Z% percent confidence. At first, I wasn't going to do this, because this type of confidence is often poorly defined and misinterpreted. But I decided it was worth it to propose a definition and go ahead and use as many made-up numbers as possible for transparency. I define Z% percent confidence that X is too high or low as meaning I have a credence of Z% percent, that an ideal reasoning process instantiated in today's world, working with our current evidence, would end up with a best-guess estimate for claim Y that is lower or higher than X. The exact instantiation of an ideal reasoning process is open to interpretation or debate, but I'll gesture at something like, take some combination of many, for example 100, very reasonable people, for example generalist forecasters with a great track record, and many domain experts who have a scout mindset, freeze time for everyone else, then give them a very large amount of time, for example a thousand years, to figure out their aggregated best guess. The people doing the reasoning can only deliberate about current evidence rather than acquire new evidence, by for example doing object-level work on AI to better understand AI timelines. Here is some text that has been struck through. It says, A property of making directional claims like this is that McCaskill always has 50% confidence in the claim I'm making, since I'm claiming that his best-guess estimate is too high or low. Then there's some text that isn't struck through that says, Edit. This actually isn't right. See a comment linked here for why. The next heading in the appendix? Thoughts on likelihood of the best possible future. In EndNote 2.22, McCaskill writes, emphasis mine, quote, I think that the expected value of the continued survival of civilization is positive, but it's very far from the best possible future. If I had to put numbers on it, I'd say that the expected value of civilization's continuation is less than 1% that of the best possible future, where best possible means best we could feasibly achieve. The biggest difference between us regards how good we expect the future to be. Toby thinks that, if we avoid major catastrophe over the next few centuries, then we have something like a 50-50 chance of achieving something close to the best possible future. I think the odds are much lower. Primarily for this reason, I prefer not to use the language of existential risk, in quotes, for reasons I spell out in Appendix 1, and prefer to distinguish between improving the future conditional on survival, trajectory changes like avoiding bad value lock-in, and extending the lifespan of civilization. Civilizational safeguarding, like reducing extinction risks. End quote. Audio note. The bolded text was, The expected value of civilization's continuation is less than 1% that of the best possible future. And, Toby thinks that, if we avoid major catastrophe over the next few centuries, then we have something like a 50-50 chance of achieving something close to the best possible future. The author continues. 
despite generally agreeing with the precipice much more than what we owe the future. I'm less sure who I agree with on this point, and therefore whether the X-risk framing is better. I lean toward Ord, and would give an around 15% chance of achieving the best possible future if we avoid catastrophe. But this credence has low resilience. The next heading in the appendices? Thoughts on McCaskill's recent posts slash comments related to the framing of the book. Heading. AMA post and responses. McCaskill wrote a post linked here, announcing what we owe the future and doing an AMA. In the post, he writes, quote, The primary aim is to introduce the idea of long-termism to a broader audience, but I think there are hopefully some things that'll be of interest to engaged EAs too. There are deep dives on moral contingency, value lock-in, civilization collapse and recovery, stagnation, population ethics and the value of the future. It also tries to bring a historical perspective to bear on these issues more often than is usual in the standard discussions. End quote. I think there are some things of interest to engaged EAs, but as I've argued, I think the book isn't a good introduction for potentially highly engaged EAs. I understand the appeal in gentle introductions. I got in through doing good better. But I think it's 90% likely I would have also gotten very interested if I had gone straight to the precipice, and so would most highly engaged long-termist EAs. McCaskill wrote in some comments linked here, quote, Highlighting one aspect of it, I agree that being generally silent on prioritisation across recommended actions is a way in which what we owe the future lacks EA helpfulness that it could have had. This is just a matter of time and space constraints. For chapters 2 to 7, my main aim was to respond to someone who says, You're saying we can improve the long-term future? That's crazy! Where my response is, Agree it seems crazy, but actually we can improve the long-term future in lots of ways. I wasn't aiming to respond to someone who says, Okay, I buy that we can improve the long-term future, but what's top priority? That would take another few books to do. For example, one book alone on the magnitude of AI X-Risk. And would also be less timeless, in quotes, as our priorities might well change over the coming years. It would be a very different book if the audience had been EAs. There would have been a lot more on prioritisation, a lot more numbers and back-of-the-envelope calculations, a lot more on AI, a lot more deep philosophy arguments, and generally more of a willingness to engage in more speculative arguments. I'd have had more of the philosophy essay, in this chapter I argue that style, and I'd have put less effort into bringing the ideas to life via metaphors and case studies. Chapters 8 and 9 on population ethics and on the value of the future are the chapters that are the most similar to how I'd have written the book if it were written for EAs. But even so, they'd still have been pretty different. End quote. The author goes on. I don't think it's obvious, but I'm still pretty sceptical of this sort of reasoning. What do we expect the people who are very sceptical about prioritising and putting numbers on things to actually do to have a large impact? And I'm still concerned about bait and switches as mentioned above. Even Doing Good Better talked heavily about prioritisation, while What We Are The Future might leave people feeling weird when they actually join the community and realise that there are strong prioritisation opinions not discussed in the book. 
It seems important for EA's community health that we can be relatively clear about our beliefs and what they imply. To the extent we're not, I think we'll potentially turn off some of the most talented potential contributors. If I try to put myself in the shoes of someone getting into EA through WWOTF, then realising that in fact there is a ton of emphasis in the long-termist movement on a relatively small portion of actions described in the book, I think I'd be somewhat turned off. I don't think this is worth potentially appealing a bit more to the general public. Heading. Response to Scott Alexander. Similarly, McCaskill wrote a forum comment in response to Scott Alexander, which might provide some insight into the framing of the book. Some reactions to the theme I found most interesting. Quote, Message testing from Rethink suggests that long-termism and existential risk have similarly good reactions from the educated general public, and AI risk doesn't do great. A lot of people just hate the idea of AI risk, CF Twitter. Thinking of it as a tech bro issue, or doomsday cultism. This has been coming up in the Twitter response to what we owe the future too, even though existential risk from AI takeover is only a small part of the book. And this is important, because I'd think that the median view among people working on X-Risk, including me, is that the large majority of the risk comes from AI, rather than bio or other sources. So, holy shit, X-Risk is mainly, holy shit, AI risk. End quote. I'm sceptical that we should give much weight to message testing with the, quote, educated general public, or the reaction of people on Twitter at least when writing for an audience including lots of potential direct work contributors. I think impact is heavy-tailed, and we should target talented people with a scout mindset who are willing to take weird ideas seriously. And as mentioned above, it seems healthy to have a community that's open about our beliefs, including the weird ones, and especially about the cause area that is considered by many, including perhaps McCaskill, to be the top long-termist priority. Being less open about weird beliefs may turn off some of the people with the most potential. Here is the next heading in the appendices. Thoughts on the balance of positive and negative value in current lives. In the section, How many people have positive well-being, beginning page 195, McCaskill uses self-reports to attempt to answer whether, quote, the world is better than nothing for the human beings alive today, end quote. First, I'm very sceptical of self-reports as evidence here, and think that it's extremely hard for us to answer this question given our current understanding. When I think about some good experiences I had and some bad experiences I had and whether I'd prefer both of them to non-existence, I mostly think, I don't know, seems really hard to weigh these against each other. I'm sceptical that others really have much more clarity here. Footnote. On why I think this objection is reasonable even though I don't really provide a great alternative, Relying on self-reports, to a significant extent, feels like streetlight fallacy to me. I don't think we should update much based on self-reports, especially the type that involves asking people if their whole life has been good or bad, rather than looking moment to moment. I don't think I need to provide a better alternative besides intuition or philosophical reasoning to make this claim. McCaskill does caveat self-reports some, but I think the vibe is much more authoritative than I'd prefer and the caveats much less strongly worded. I'd go for a vibe of, we have no idea WTF is going on here. Here's the best empirical evidence we have, but don't take it seriously at all, it's really shitty. 
That's the end of the footnote. Second, I think even given the results of these self-reports, it's puzzling to me that on page 201, McCaskill concludes that if he were given an option to live a randomly chosen life today, he would. The most convincing evidence to me that he describes is a survey that asked people whether they'd skip parts of their day if they could, discussed on page 198. McCaskill writes, quote, Taking both duration and intensity into account, the negative experiences were only bad enough to cancel out 58% of people's positive experiences. The right conclusion is actually more pessimistic. Participants in these studies mainly lived in the United States or in other countries with comparatively high income levels and levels of happiness. End quote. McCaskill then goes on to describe a survey of people in both India and the United States, whether their whole life has been net good. Due to the difficulty waiting experiences I described above and rosy retrospection biases, I put very little weight on this follow-up study. If we mainly focus on the skipping study, I think the result should make us somewhat pessimistic about the overall value of the current world. In addition to the consideration McCaskill brought up, the study likely didn't include many examples of extreme suffering, which seemed quite bad compared to the range of positive experiences accessible to us today, even through a classical utilitarian lens. I feel like I basically have no idea, but if I had to guess, I'd say around 40% of current human lives are net negative, and the world as a whole is worse than nothing for humans alive today, because extreme suffering is pretty bad compared to currently achievable positive states. This does not mean that I think this trend will continue into the future. I think the future has positive expected value due to AI and future technology. This was an audio version of My Take on What We Owe the Future by Eli Lifland, published on the 2nd of September 2022. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.